Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I credit you and Michael Saylor with opening my eyes uh, to digital assets for that matter. So, uh, you get a lot of credit for that. So if, uh, if Bitcoin goes up, I'm hugging you. And of course, Bitcoin goes down. I don't care, Lynn. It is what it is. I'm a big boy. So welcome to Wealthy On and Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. And thank you so much for joining us. Whether you're a novice investor or an experienced investor, uh, the goal of Wealthy On is to educate you and to help create aspirational wealth and long-term investment planning. We're looking to help you match your long-term goals uh, with, your, with our investment ideas. And with that in mind, uh, we have several registered investment advisors that are affiliated with Wealthy On. You can visit us at www.wealthion.com for more information, and you can unlock a complimentary no strings attached consultation with any of these advisors. Uh, Wealthion is always evolving and it's always improving. And so always looking for customer feedback and ideas from people listening in. So please send us emails, uh, give us comments on our, our YouTube uh, videos and so forth. So I am welcoming today, Lynn Alden, who's uh, been on Wealthion before and uh, been on several of my podcasts. Uh, she is a brilliant investor. And uh, self-definition, which I love, is that you're at the intersection of technology and finance and the macroeconomic landscape, Lynn. And I've learned so much from you over the years. And uh, I want to start today, if you don't mind, with the general macro overview of the economy, what you're seeing, what you made of the uh, Fed conversation, Jerome Powell's conversation yesterday. Uh, and what you see for 2024 for the U.S. economy and the global economy. And welcome to the show. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I think the description of the macro economy is that we've had one of the biggest divergences between fiscal policy and monetary policy in recent memory. Uh, and so the, the general tightness of monetary policy is higher than normal. And at the same time, the looseness of fiscal policy, meaning the, the size of the deficits, especially relative to the size of the economy, is larger than normal, especially outside of a recession. And so that gap is resulting in sectors performing um, like their their divergence in performance almost couldn't be wider than it has been in history. So, for example, um, things that are not sensitive to interest rates, uh, at least as much like profitable tech companies or restaurants and travel, things like that, 
they're generally doing quite fine. Whereas when you look over at um, you know commercial real estate or unprofitable tech companies or um, things that in general are either highly reliant on issuing equity or highly reliant on you know kind of short or moderate term debt, those are the industries that are really struggling. Um, especially if they've also been impacted by changes, things like work work from home, and so this this you know everyone's kind of focused on the question of recession or no recession, whereas I'm generally finding that some sectors are already deep in recession, whereas other ones are booming. And so you have to kind of answer that question on a sector by sector basis because you have this bigger than normal gap. Uh, and so the FOMC meeting and also the Treasury announcements this week um, were informative. Uh, they, they, they showed us a slight diversion from the trend we've seen over the past quarter. So, you know, the past couple quarters, we've seen larger and larger fiscal deficits, a lot of bond issuance, uh, especially a lot of, of short duration, like bill issuance, which is really good for liquidity. And we've also seen the Fed get more dovish over time. They kind of uh, finally eased their, their hawkishness. But what we saw in this recent uh, week was that the Treasury uh, came in lighter than expected for how much uh, deficits they're expecting to run over this next uh, quarter or two. And we also saw the Fed push back a little bit on the dovish narrative. They kind of reaffirmed some degree of hawkishness. They kind of took March rate cuts off the table, and they kind of delayed any sort of dovish action outright. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of a consolidation with expectations going forward. But I think the overall structural view is still the same, which is that you have relatively tight monetary policy, and you have relatively loose fiscal policy. So, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but likely recession or soft recession or no recession? I've in the view of either no recession or soft recession or and the way I describe that is kind of sector specific recession or the type of recession you generally see in emerging markets, which would feel quite different than a recession you get in, in typical developed markets. So when people think of recession now, they often think of either COVID or they think of the 2008 financial crisis. Whereas, for example, if you go back to the prior recession, you had the 2001 recession, which was obviously very bad for equities, given how overvalued they were. But the actual recession itself was quite mild in terms of the unemployment rate, in terms of the GDP contraction, in terms of what uh, other sectors did. Um, it was not a very severe recession by most metrics. And I think that to the extent that we do get a recession, and I admit, I, you know, it's, it, in 12 months, there's a lot that can happen. Uh, but to the extent that we do get a recession, I would expect it to be more like that 2001 variety where some of those unemployment statistics and some of those GDP contractions are maybe not as severe as people fear. But that, of course, can still have very big implications. I think one of the biggest concerns in the markets is that a lot of the bond proxy type of equities, so uh, you know, kind of defensive, high-quality equities, a lot of them have been bid up to very high valuations. You know, Costco, for example, it's a great company, but the stock is trading at at you know valuations that make it look like they're doing AI or something, right? And so exactly. you have that problem. Yeah, and you have that problem where if you know if you get even a middling economy, let alone a, a slightly recessionary economy. Um, those valuations are just hard to justify uh, at, at these very high levels. So I think it's very sector specific out there. So I think you, you're doing a brilliant job of explaining what's going on. So the the overall GDP number is okay. It's improved 3.3%, but there's pockets of rolling recession going around in the economy, which is why when you poll people, how do they feel about the economy? I think the Biden administration right now has a 43% approval rating related to the economy. So so my I guess my question is will people towards the end of the year start feeling better or worse Lynn in terms of where the e economy is? 
my expectations probably somewhere the same, although I admit that I, I'm not really sure because right now when you're in inflection points, it's harder to judge. When you have a firm uh, trend in place, it's easier to extrapolate that. So for example, in early 2022, my view was quite bearish for that year. Uh, and we had, you know, uh, purchasing managed indices like PMIs rolling over. We had liquidity indicators rolling over. It was a very bad year for most most risk assets. Um, but around kind of either late that year, or especially early 2023, I started to inflect more positively, saying I, I'm kind of flat to up now. Um, as we go into 2024, um, I'm less bullish on markets in general than I was last year. Uh, but I'm not exactly acutely bearish either. And the problem with forecasting the economy is that we're seeing most indicators like PMIs have bottomed, uh, but they're not really showing signs of rolling up yet either. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest comparisons is probably late 2019, where you had PMIs and other indicators were kind of stabilizing, starting to roll up, and then they got hit by COVID in, right. in you know, early next year. So you never really know if a trend's going to continue. I, I start to I'm seeing divergences where, where, for example, labor market is is finally starting to show some some more notable weakness, you could say. Um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, liquidity indicators are actually starting to show signs of rolling back up. And so I, I still place this as a, as a pretty high uncertainty environment where, um, you know, I don't really expect, expect the extremes. So I don't really expect a gigantic recession. I don't really expect a raging bull market this year. And my view is unfortunately pretty wide in the middle. Because we have to be honest when we have when we have kind of high conviction directions and some of those more more neutral directions. Okay, so while all of this general economic data is coming in and we're analyzing economic policy, we're offering forecasts. Uh, you have a brand new book out uh, called Broken Money, and I'd love to because I'm a huge fanboy of yours. I would love to get you on my podcast where I interview authors. But your book is absolutely fascinating. And it talks about what we've done, not just the United States, but countries around the world have done to fiat currency and have done to our money. So, so give our viewers and listeners a brief overview of the book, Have Broken Money, and then I'm going to tie it into the economy where we are now and the story of digital assets, which I think is one of the bigger stories of our time. Sure. So broken money is about the past, present, and future of money, uh, and especially through the lens of technology. So, for example, a lot of economic history books or monetary history books focus on history in the traditional sense, things like human decisions, things like geopolitical decisions. What did what did this political leader do that resulted in this outcome and then impacted this other country in this way, for example? Whereas I focus a lot on kind of the engineering question of how did new technologies shape what we use as money and how we interface with it directly? Uh, and so it goes over, you know, analog monetary technologies, you know, from coinage to paper to printing press to all, you know, analog encryption techniques to prevent forgeries, that kind of stuff. But then, of course, it jumps into the digital age with the invention of the telegraph uh, and the invention of just various ways to kind of move ownership of money around. And the general theme, if I had to summarize it, is that the past 200 years or so, uh, even more in many contexts, almost every monetary friction has been solved by centralization. So for example, gold is, is bulky to move around. It's hard to verify that it's gold down to its core. Uh, you know, it's basically an expensive and slow proposition to move around and settle gold. So a lot of the monetary technologies for centuries have been around, how do we move claims for gold faster than gold itself? And the answer to almost every time was, well, we centralize it. We put it in a third party, and then we just trade you know, ledger entries with that third party. 
And then maybe when that third party has a problem, we get an even bigger third party that's under multiple third parties, right? So we keep adding layers and layers of centralization to make it so that not just in a country, but around the world, you can send someone money. And really what you're doing is interacting with a series of centralized ledgers. So for for centuries, every single time we ran into a friction, we're like, well, more centralization can make that more efficient. And I think what's interesting about Bitcoin and kind of related technologies like stable coins and things like that, basically the, the idea of just kind of globalizing this market is it's the first time where you've got greater efficiency, but also better decentralization. And of course, you're relying on other things like you're relying on a functioning Internet or other high bandwidth ways of communication. You're relying on, you know, we had to get certain levels of encryption, certain levels of bandwidth in place before this was possible. But now that this technology is in place, this is the first notable monetary technology that that kind of breaks that multi-century trend of more efficiency, but also more centralization. And we get more efficiency and decentralization. Okay, so I've read all of your work I'm, uh, as i said i'm a huge fanboy so i'm gonna create a narrative I, and some of it is distilled from your work and i'd like you to to react to it so uh we had a period of post-world war ii prosperity uh we had the bretton woods contract and so for viewers and listeners basically the industrialized nations in the west got together right before the end of the second world war to create a trading system and to sort of lock the currencies relative to the U.S. dollar. And of course, the U.S. dollar was pegged to $35 an ounce. The system lasted for 27 years. And I can tell you, Lynn, that the Scaramucci family is a direct beneficiary of this because the stability of prices as a result of Bretton Woods allowed for blue-collar working families who were receiving their wages to have price stability. So people like my dad were able to live in the middle class. In 1971, uh, the, the Nixon administration decided to unclip the United States from the gold standard and abandon the Bretton Woods Treaty. We did that primarily because we had huge deficits, uh, hard to pay back the deficits of the Vietnam War, and we couldn't really supply gold into the marketplace, or at least we certainly didn't want to. And so our money has traded freely as fiat currency, not linked to anything, just backed by the American government. Uh, for the last 53 or 54 years. Uh, that money has gone down in value. So we had $35 an ounce. And where's gold today, Lynn? I don't know, 2000 or so dollars an ounce. We've lost 98% of our purchasing power. Uh, wealthy individuals are probably okay, but lower and middle income people have been blasted by this because as they get their money from their their time, it's almost even a theft of their labor because the, the money that they've received is worth less year over year and they really can't catch up. And so I guess what I'm asking you, because I've read Broken Money and I've thought about this process, are we drunk drivers? Is the central bank and the, and the fiscal, the federal government of the United States irresponsible with the money? Is it now time to take the keys away from those people and put it into this decentralized technology? I think the incentives are all there to do so, yes. I mean, I think people are going to be inclined towards whatever's the stronger money, especially if it's of a similar or faster speed than the weaker money. So, for example, over the past century, the biggest comparison was, say, gold and the dollar, whereas gold obviously held its value a lot better than the dollar, but the dollar had various advantages of speed and convenience. And so even though the dollar was, was weaker, it was still stable enough that 
especially when you combine, you know, legal monopolies and legal tender laws, things like that, that the dollar was able to win out. One thing that's interesting about Bitcoin is that it's uh, over the long term, it grows even less than gold in terms of su new supply. So it's even scarcer than gold and it can move around as fast or faster than fiat currencies can. Uh, and so that's a really compelling long-term story to get people to gravitate towards it uh, and change some of the structure. Although, uh, you know, in my view, that's a that's a multi-decade story. That's not like a, you know, one decade or a two-decade story. It takes very long time to, you know, change these gigantic structures. And one thing that's notable about the Bretton Woods era is that you know a lot of focus is on that 1971 decision to to leave it. But what what the evidence shows is that it was breaking basically throughout the 60s. Um, you know, the Bretton Woods system, it was decided upon in 1944, it was implemented in 1946, but then it wasn't really even fully implemented until the late 1950s. That's when they undid some of the kind of the post-war era uh, controls that were in place. And that's when they actually started that, that overall process. And from that point, the amount of gold reserves went straight down. And that's partially because we were running significant deficits. And it's also partially because banks, fractures or banks were lending more dollars into existence and they were not constrained by the amount of gold in the system. So you had an environment where, you know, from 1950 to 1970, the broad money supply tripled as gold reserves diminished. And so the system was, it was inherently unstable to begin with. It was always a rational decision to redeem some of those ever inflating dollars for gold until they were going to run out of gold. And so we kind of have this story where we centralize everything and then over, over a matter of decades, that centralized entity fails, partially because it was just unstably designed to begin with. It was kind of, you know, it, it was like great while it lasted, but it was designed not to last is the challenge. Right. Uh, I, and, and you make an interesting point because it decentralized things are more anti-fragile than centralized things. I think we both agree with that, right? Yeah. And so, for example, if you look at the history of the dollar, it was defined in, in 1792. And from there all the way up until the early uh, 1900s, uh, its purchasing power remained unchanged. Uh, it could buy the same amount of gold. It could buy the same amount of general goods and services based on most estimates. You know, during wars, there'd be some period of inflation, but then it would kind of revert back after the war. Um, and it wasn't until this more modern era where we began centralizing everything uh, and growing the money supply on average at a faster rate, that we started to get this devaluation. And to your point about who it affects or who it helps most, basically, it's, it's kind of the economy is kind of like a game of blackjack, where with blackjack, you want to get close to 21, but you don't want to go over. Uh, and the way that who, who best is rewarded in this economy is people that have debt, but not so much that they blow up in a recession. So if you're if you have long term low interest rate debt and you're using it to buy scarcer assets, you know, real estate, business, you know, cash flow, business equity, things like that, uh, the closer you are to the source of money creation, you're you're shorting the fiat currency that everybody else is uh, earning their wages in and saving their near term money in and you're buying scarcer assets and you're doing very good, especially because you have global arbitrage. You can short one currency and buy assets somewhere else, for example. Whereas if you're if you're on the other side of the spectrum and you're, you know, you don't have a lot of access to credit and you and you're just kind of earning wages, you're saving a little bit, you're getting constantly devalued. You're getting paid in melting ice cubes. And so that's kind of the divergence we've seen over the past several decades, which is that uh, it's just it's very kind of challenging. And in the United States, we've had it still pretty good. You know, for example, I, I spend part of each year in Egypt and they have 20% annual money supply growth. Um, and so you can imagine everything is dialed up 
everything is, you know, the prices are on average going up a lot quicker. Um, even banking access is lower. So fewer people have access to banks to even earn interest to partially offset the, the devaluation that's occurring. So if you're on the bottom of the income spectrum there, you're, you're literally dealing with cash. You're getting paid in cash, whatever small savings you have are in cash. And that's literally inflating away at 20% a year on average, year after year after year after year. While if you're fairly wealthy, you might be shorting the currency. You might be, you know, buying real estate with a multi-year loan at pretty low interest rates, or you might be doing some sort of arbitrage, for example, where you're actually benefiting from that devaluation of that currency. And that that's happening in 160 different currencies around the world to different speeds and different levels and you know different opportunities. And I think that basically we we spent the last several decades financializing the economy. And I think that some of these technologies allow us to shift that pendulum back a little bit towards, in some ways, less financialization and more real world building and, and kind of sending the incentives back towards those who earn and save. Well, you, you, you just made the case for the harder currency, Bitcoin, uh, by that, that brilliant exposition. I want to put you in charge of the Fed for a moment, and I'm going to put you before the Congress. And so... This is probably why people like you and I will never be in charge of the Fed, because I want you to tell the truth. And if I'm, I'm the congressman and I'm asking you as a Fed chair and I say to you, well, we've got 30 plus trillion dollars worth of debt. Let's forget about the liabilities associated with Social Security or Medicare. Let's just stick to the 34 trillion dollar number. Uh, Lynn, can, can we ever pay back that number? Or are we just going to, in fact, continue to monetize the debt by cheapening our currency? I would say that as structured, there, there's really no other way that uh, other than to continue monetizing it. And that's the problem. So, for example, the Fed is interesting in the sense that they, when things get really extreme, they lose control. So, for example, the 1940s during the war era, they were just overtaken by the Treasury. They were forced to monetize uh, the deficits and to keep them at low interest rates. And, you know, in the past couple of years, when we had, you know, these extreme uh, events in various ways, they just jumped in and monetized it right away. And so they can they can try to be independent when things are going reasonably well. But as soon as you have a problem in the sovereign bond market or one of those adjacent markets, they always jump in. And so one thing that's interesting is that during COVID, Powell asked for more fiscal support. He said, look, our tools are kind of exhausted. We need more fiscal. But you don't really see the opposite happening now. You don't see him coming out and saying, look, we're trying to tighten. Um, but these very large fiscal deficits are outside of our control. And if you want to more sustainably get inflation under control, you'd have to reduce those deficits. That's that's a fiscal decision. And you don't really see them doing that. And so I think one thing the Fed could do is say, look, I mean, our tools are mostly designed to affect the rate of bank lending. So we have tools that can kind of incentivize or promote the rate of bank lending, which is generally pro-growth or pro-inflation. We can slow down the rate of bank lending, which helps reduce inflation or help kind of slow things down. But if you're running very, very large deficits, that's going around our tools. And that's that's largely outside of our purview. And that's mostly a, a fiscal problem. So a lot of my emphasis is pointing out that, you know, in some ways, regardless of what the Fed does, it, it's largely a long term fiscal spiral that we're going through. You know, and you, even if you look at the Congressional Budget Office's long term projections, it's just large and larger deficits as, I, as far as the eye can see. 
And then you get that negative feedback loop where if the Fed actually tries to raise rates to slow down inflation, they exacerbate the deficit because there's so much debt relative to the size of the economy and therefore the interest expense goes up. And the spiral. And then they issue more debt to, to pay the interest. And so it's it's largely the, the source of the concern now, I would say, is emanating from the fiscal side. So I, I so then the follow-up question would be to a the very honest Federal Reserve Chair, is there anything that we could do? Because we do we were set up quite nicely coming into the year 2000, uh, where we had a 200 plus billion dollar surplus at the end of the 1990s. And the CBO was talking about a $5 trillion surplus going forward. Of course, we we got involved in two wars in the Middle East, uh, a global financial crisis, other things blew a hole in that system. But is it possible if I made you the czar and I said, okay, you have control of the federal government, the fiscal side, and the monetary side, uh, could we fix it? Is there a long-term plan uh, that we could fix the situation? Yeah, I think the challenge there is that the fixes are would be so unpopular that those trying to fix it would be voted out, and then they go back right. to not fixing it. So, for example, uh, the demographics are such that the you know things like Social Security and Medicare are not long-term sustainable as designed. They were designed in a different era. They weren't designed with the idea that population growth would eventually slow down and that, that the society would become very aged. So if you look at, for example, how many workers pay into Social Security for every retiree, uh, that number keeps uh, shrinking over time, where it becomes a very big burden for the small number of workers paying in. Um, and retirement age you know, was originally around the average human life expectancy. So some people didn't even make it to there. Some people went over. Uh, but in general, there weren't people kind of uh, uh, living on those benefits for many decades. Whereas in recent decades, our life expectancy has gone up quite a bit, but our retirement age has, has gone up at a slower pace. And so there's that ratio of, of longer um, uh, periods of receiving support. Uh, and so you have this thing where it's, it's, it's just economically unsustainable. Also, I mean, the way that we structure our healthcare system and, and kind of the, the health problems we have um, you know, related to diet and things like that have kind of blown out the deficit on the Medicare side as well, um, at, arguably as big or bigger as, as Social Security. And so without kind of fixing the, the, the um, overall long-term balance of those, it's very hard to get the deficit under control. Um, but anyone trying to touch those, uh, it, it's kind of one of the few bipartisan things out there these days is don't meaningfully touch those um, because, the, you know, politicians are working on their incentives and if you try to meaningfully cut those, you you basically lose the election and then the next person doesn't cut exactly. those. And the same thing for the military, basically, you know, foreign adventurism. All right. So this is my last question before we take questions from our audience. Uh, uh, people are always welcome to uh, leave us voicemails or they can uh, they can send an email. We have several questions today. But my last question, and I get this all the time from people. Uh, that listen to speak up or I run into them at uh, public presentations that I'm making and they ask me the following question. They say, well, given the dramatic backdrop that you've just described in terms of this deficit spiral that the United States is facing, uh, yet people are day to day working in the economy, people day to day are innovating in the economy. What happens? What eventually happens? Is there just a, is there a restructuring of the United States? Does the United States have to uh, Remonetize itself, reset its uh, currency. Uh, do we have to uh, print a trillion, a thirty-four trillion dollar coin, as an example, pay off the debt? What What do you think eventually happens? 
or is it a gradual slouch downward to further and further demonetization? So I think there's two main outcomes. If there's enough technological development, so in other words, enough deflationary pressure, things like AI, uh, or making sure we continue to have abundant energy, for example, then you can get a case where the current status lasts a very long time in the sense that deficits keeping running, uh, every once in a while they're monetized to a significant degree, and inflation is uh, you know, largely offset by the gains in productivity. And the, the downside of that scenario is that those who own financial assets keep benefiting and benefiting and benefiting and you keep widening this existing gap we have you know, basically you continue the past 40 years uh and you probably get more and more political polarization until you get some extreme nonlinear events uh basically the the rate of those starts to increase decade after decade or at least the, the probability of those starts to increase decade after decade until you get unforeseen circumstances that that's kind of one scenario the other scenario is that if you do run into more acute energy shortages you know we, we don't do sufficient energy capex and say for example we have a, a major multi-year sustained bull market in energy prices or ai does not live up to the um, productivity gains that the bulls expect for example and doesn't offset some of the inflation enough then you can get more acute issues where you get things like yield curve control uh, you get major currency devaluation relative to commodities or relative to consumer prices. Uh, and you basically get a restructuring of the debt. I mean, there's, there's, there's two major ways to default on debt. One is you can default on it just outright. And the other one is you basically print the difference where you technically give all the units back, but all those units buy a lot less than they could before. It's not, it's not the same unit that the contract holder expected when they, you know, uh, bought that bond. Uh, and so I think one of those two outcomes, basically in, in either way, it's generally not great um, for someone who's not prepared for it. You're either, you know, you're either not owning financial assets, um, you know, kind of overall kind of ownership of things that are scarce and cash flow producing or just useful, um, or you're, you know, you own those and you get devalued. So it's a, it's a really kind of challenging binary outcome that's largely based on how how powerful those deflationary forces are. So, I mean, it's, a, it's obviously a brilliant exposition, but if you're a 20-year-old, 30, 40, or 50-year-old, it's more or less the same game plan, isn't it? It's to try to short the fiat currency and try to get into financial assets, uh, real estate, stocks, and bonds, maybe faster-growing stocks that are going to help you outpace uh, the rate of inflation. Isn't that really the right call? Yeah, we try to own whatever's scarce because in either scenario, um, you should benefit in the long term. So things like Bitcoin, equities, um, you know, cash flow producing businesses, ways to earn a good income, high quality real estate that's not in bubble valuations, uh, for example. You, you buy those things and, you know, to the extent that you use, use leverage, you use it cautiously and particularly in periods of lower rates um, to make sure, again, it's unfortunately like a game of blackjack where, mm -hmm. you know, generally if you're not using any debt, you're kind of the you're kind of the the people other people are dunking on, right? You're you're the one that's kind of not benefiting right. from the situation. But of course, if you overuse leverage, um, then you're one of the ones right. that you're wiped out. You right, wipe exactly. Out. So it's a judicious use of leverage. Uh, it could be uh, uh, you know fair uh, market value mortgage. You know, you pay fifty percent of your uh, house in equity, fifty percent of a mortgage, or something like that, or minus amount of leverage on. Uh, high quality stocks, things like that. Um, Lynn, we're going to take some questions. Uh, I promise you in and out of speak up quickly. And so 
we're, we're going to wrap in a little bit, but what are your thoughts on the Bitcoin ETS versus Bitcoin itself? And this is Charles from Georgia. He's 68 years old. The ETFs are easy to use, but he's been a GPC holder for several years. So what are your thoughts about GPTC, the ETFs, and obviously Bitcoin itself? So Bitcoin itself gives you multiple opportunities that the ETF does not. So for example, you can self-custody it, you can bring it around the world, you can use it for its monetary purposes. Um, but not everybody currently needs or desires that use case. So uh, if you don't foresee that you're ever going to want that use case, um, the ETFs can make sense for people. They have retirement accounts, they have managed assets, they, you know, they have traditional um, brokerages. And so to the extent that the ETFs are now an option, I view them as better as GBTC has been. So now GBTC is also an ETF. Um, the downside is its fees are higher than some of these newer ones. Um, and so generally, if I if I had, for example, Bitcoin price exposure in a re, in a retirement account, I would probably rotate towards those those cheaper alternatives, the Fidelity or the BlackRock or you know these other low cost ETFs. Um, if I was holding GBTC in a retirement account, I would talk to my tax uh, advisor because there there can be you know if you not always chasing low fees is the right answer because you could get hit with an unexpected capital gain tax. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to do that because you want to have the benefit of all that un all that compounding. Yeah. Yeah, good, so, good bait. exactly. Yeah. Um all right, let's go to another question. We got another question coming up. Actual crypto use cases. I, I struggle to find one, Ashley says from New Jersey. Have you seen any? I'll let you start with that because I think you're better equipped to answer it than me. So uh, she's in New Jersey. I'm in New Jersey as well. Uh, and so we have the benefit of pretty good money as far as global monies are concerned. And we have the benefit of a good housing market in S&P 500, right? So our money is not as broken as others. And our savings, we basically monetize the equity market for our savings. That, that's what a lot of us do. And so it's easy for us to look around and say, what's the purpose of Bitcoin? Uh, I think the perp when you when you look at the the um, the use case for it, you have to look at the global marketplace. There's 160 different currencies out there, uh, and many of them do not have attractive equity markets or real estate markets for people to invest in. You know, it, it, the question of liquid savings is very hard. I I have a um, friend who's a physician in Egypt, and he literally stacks physical dollars like under his mattress as part of his savings because he doesn't have a local equity market that's really attractive long-term. He doesn't want to hold his local currency. Uh, so it kind of comes down to, you know, he's got a little bit of real estate, but that's illiquid. Um, and so it comes down to dollars, gold, uh, and, you know, assets like Bitcoin and things like that. Um, and so another, another complicating factor is that, let's say, for example, if I send money to a graphic designer in country XYZ, maybe it's Egypt, maybe it's Nigeria, maybe it's Argentina, they often will receive it in their local currency at a fake exchange rate, and they then they still have the problem of what do I keep my savings in, or how do I how do I make sure I raise my prices each year in line with um, uh, the monetary debasement that's happening. And one of the cool things about Bitcoin, or stable coins for that matter, uh, is that I can send them the money that they prefer around their local banking system, as long as it's not a sanctioned country for me, right? So for example, I would not send money to an Iranian, even though I, I would have the technical capability to do so, I wouldn't take that risk as an, as an American. But for example, as long as they're in a country where it's fine for me to send it to them, 
we can go around their local banking system, which is the problem. I can send them stable coins or I can send them Bitcoin over a call like this. They can hold up a QR code and I could send it to them. They could send me a DM or an email saying, here's how to pay me. I can pay them. And then now they're getting their full rate uh, and they're able to save it. They're able to bring it with them should they leave their country, which as Americans, we don't really think about leaving our country. Uh, but if you're in Lebanon, or if you're in Argentina, if you're in Venezuela, like I personally know someone who moved from Venezuela to Canada and he brought Bitcoin with him, whereas many other Venezuelans just leave penniless um, as they try to flee because it's very hard to actually bring value with you outside of countries that have that problem. And so I think that the main answer I would say is think globally and think about a, a, a kind of a board with 160 different currencies. Most of them are rapidly devaluing. Most of them have capital controls to varying strengths around them. And things like Bitcoin and stable coins give people more options to self-custody money, to receive money they want, to go around you know, financial borders and things like that. You know, it's fascinating. You're, you're saying a lot there, and I'll say something that you're saying subtly, a little bit more uh, profoundly. Uh, what Lynn is basically saying is that there's a natural political proclivity to devalue the money. It helps politicians in the short term to do these things, and a result of which is happening all over the world. And so it's happening less so in the United States, even though we just described how much it is happening here. Uh, and so for places that are less stable than the United States, actually, we're seeing a lot more use cases than you would typically see in a place like New Jersey or New York. I think we got two more questions. And why don't we go there? There's so much tension in the Middle East between Gaza now with a proxy fight with Iran. How do you see this impacting U.S. markets this year? So one of the main questions is to what extent could it impact inflation? because that can impact uh, forward expectations of Fed policy and bond rates, which can then impact equity valuations, for example, uh, or even things like Bitcoin valuations. But let's, let's focus on stocks and bonds here. So to the extent that the Red Sea remains largely closed, that's a, an ongoing moderate-sized inflationary pressure that's, you know, it's up against other disinflationary pressures. Um, to the extent that things exacerbate, and say the U.S. government, uh, U.S. military gets more involved in certain regions, uh, that can exacerbate the fiscal deficit and result in more bonds coming to market than were otherwise expected, which again can be negative for uh, interest rates. Uh, like it can be, it can be problematic for interest rates and therefore prob problematic for equity markets. It can force the Fed to monetize debts that they would have otherwise not wanted to monetize because they're trying to be hawkish. Um, and so those are the main things. There's kind of that baseline question of what if what if the status quo continues? And then the longer term question of are there nonlinear events from this? For example, if we fast forward, you know, a year or two years, there's questions like, you know, is Iranian oil still getting to the market or not, right? For one reason or another. Or is the Red Sea still open or closed? There's things that can kind of spiral negatively should certain things escalate. And so those are the main things is does it disrupt energy? Uh, does it disrupt shipping more than it already has? But I think the, the biggest outlier question is what happens? Does it affect energy in any sort of really meaningful way? That's great. It's a great answer. Lynn. We got one more question. The tech CEOs, they testified uh, this week. Uh, do you see any meaningful change coming to those platforms in an election year? This is from Dave, and he's from Oklahoma. So I think that any anything that's meaningful enough that has to go through Congress and the president is unlikely to happen. 
uh, this year, like anything that would really, really materially affect them because of how polarized our political environment is. Uh, you know, there are some actions that be, that can be done only with, you know, the, the executive branch, for example, but those are generally more restrained in terms of what they can do. And so I generally discount that uh, in this particular year or any one particular year, uh, but they, they are important to monitor over a, a longer term period. I also think that this this kind of shows the importance of sort of open source versions of what some of these big tech companies do. And so, for example, you know, there's a, a an open source protocol called Noster um, that allows people to communicate with each other. It's kind of like, uh, you know, an underlying protocol like Twitter, except it's more decentralized. There's no central entity that can decide who gets to post, who doesn't get to post, what they can post, um, you know, what what the, what their if their posts are amplified or deamplified. For example, uh, and also you can you can use it to send Bitcoin to other people. You can kind of tip each other's posts, and then technically the protocol can be used for more things than that. There's also, for example, open source AI um, that you know it's right now it's it's several months behind some of the the cutting edge AI, but it's also the fact that it's it's more unrestricted, uh, and that can actually in some ways make it make it better than the the technically leading edge stuff that has more filters over it, things like that. So overall, if you go through the list of different tech platforms out there, there are some of these open source equivalents. And to the extent that those centralized ones get disrupted or changed or kind of centralized more and more, I actually think that increases the case for some of these open source ones. Um, and then as well as things like Bitcoin that actually allow for the payment uh, to occur with these different things. I mean, one of the cool things I did was Speaking of Bitcoin and foreign markets, I used the um, Africa Bitcoin Conference app. Um, uh, it was it was last year, and so you know I'm, I'm in this app. It's a wallet, um, and you could you could use Chat GBTC. Uh, I mean Chat um, GBT uh, with this app payable in Bitcoin uh, without a subscription. Uh, and so you know basically it, it democratizes access to some of these AI things that you know in, in recent years have otherwise taken subscriptions. Um, so I, I think that those technologies can kind of get a leg up should we see some longer term disruption. But yeah, this year I wouldn't expect much. Okay, so Lynn, where can we find you? Okay, we have we have this brand new book out called Broken Money. Obviously you can purchase that on Amazon or where books are sold. Uh, what else are you doing? You have a newsletter. Uh, where are you on Twitter? What's your Twitter address? Uh, so I'm at lynnalden.com. That's the main one. People can check out my free material. They can check out my newsletter. Uh, I also have a low-cost research service that they can look into. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Lynn Alden Contact. Uh, and if they want to learn more about money in general, check out Broken Money. Yeah, well, Lynn, you are uh, brilliant and fascinating, and you are at the intersection of more than just technology and money and finance and the economy. You have a really good sense for what's going on in the world. And so I just want to thank you very much for joining us this week on Speak Up. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, until next week, this is Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. Thank you guys so much for joining the show.